ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. One of the questions that vexed many young people after 1917 was how to live a new life. That is, what did it mean to live the revolution, a cultured, rational, modern, and collective life? Many young people turned to forming urban communes in their dormitories, apartments, and in workplaces to figure this out. As Andy Willemont shows in his new book on urban communes, these efforts to live the revolution defined what the early Soviet system meant to people in their everyday life. I decided to ask him to give us more information on the people living the revolution in the 1920s. Andy Willemont is a lecturer in modern Russian and Soviet history at the University of Reading, specializing in the social and cultural history of revolutionary Russia and the early Soviet state, with a particular interest in the formation and experience of radical ideology. He's the co-author with Matthias Newman of Rethinking the Russian Revolution as Historical Divide, and his new book is Living the Revolution, Urban Communes and, the, and Soviet Socialism, 1917 to 1931, published by Oxford University Press and the winner of the Bassis Alexander Nova Book Prize for 2018. Here's Andy Willemont. I, I thought we'd start, I mean, it's such a, you have such an interesting topic uh, looking at urban communes in the early Soviet period. Uh, and, and as you point out, there just hasn't been that much attention on it in terms of historical scholarship. And the attention that there has been, it tells this kind of tragic story, which I'll, I'll ask about you later. So I, I thought we'd start by just having you talk about what inspired you to write a study on the commune in, in early, the early Soviet period. Well, the urban communes um, are basically made up of this cast of fiery-eyed, bed-headed uh, enthusiasts. Um, you know, and so I realized that when I, when I got to know these guys through research in the archives, that the, theirs was a tale of revolutionary aspiration, appropriation, and participation at the ground level. Um, and I, I was really keen to, to use them uh, to find a way of explaining what or revolution would have been like at this time for for real people for ordinary people um so i first i first like many people came across um the idea of these urban communes uh, in richard Steitz's book revolutionary dreams uh, where he briefly notes these um urban commune groups and these activists uh as a part of a much bigger uh narrative of utopianism really in in the early soviet state um perhaps i'm being a bit mean or critical here, but the, the, the book kind of is, is a celebration of the childlike beauty of utopianism, 
and it kind of contrasts that with what comes. So it con con contrasts that with Stalinism. And, um, and, and that's fascinating. And, and I thought, therefore, there, you know, there's a fascinating story in that, if I could just find some more detail on, on these urban communes. Um, I guess at the same time, I also felt a bit disappointed in the way um, that it, that was presented or what Stites had presented. Uh, it felt like just another example of those kind of arresting examples, yet kind of somehow superfluous examples like the conductorless orchestras or, you know, the kind of um, teacherless schools or something like that. Uh, it didn't quite kind of seem real. Uh, and so when I started to do research into the topic, I thought maybe I'll find something, you know, like these little idols, these kind of um, utopian uh, people cut adrift from the world around them, a bit like, I don't know, like a religious colony in the 19th century or something like that. And yet when I started to find some more material on these guys, I realised that there was actually a far more dynamic story. You know, they called themselves communards, you know, very much alluding to the communards of 1871, the Paris Commune. They also talked about themselves as kind of civic agitators. They talked about this theme and of kind of obscurefnos of the kind of a civic mindedness if you will uh, and, and and I found one um, commune or communard who said if not us then who you know that was the question at this time of revolution everything was being questioned um, you know a, a new life was meant to be on the horizon and there's this kind of sense of immediacy within these these groups that I thought was really interesting so I thought this is not just exciting in terms of utopianism this is exciting because we, we've got people here who can show what it must have felt like to live through this time and so ultimately you know what I what I try to do what I hope I managed to do by bringing that together in the book is to kind of show their their journey their experience in, in kind of th through three aspects um, to show the, the texture of their life uh, which I think is you know, interesting in, in and of itself, really, um, because you know, history should really be making an argument through telling a story, so I can tell their lives and, and, and the argument can come with that. Um, but also to show how they appropriated these grand revolutionary theories, how Marxism came into real life, if you will. But then ultimately I wanted to see you know, where their they were in dialogue with the revolution. So whilst they were enacting these collective visions and, and living what they thought of as socialism, living this thing called socialism, um, how did the, the, the party, how did any, uh, everyone else respond to them? And was there a dialogue there? And so I, I realised that there, there was a kind of hopefully an exciting um, subject here, but also a subject that could speak to many of the kind of important issues uh, across the the opening decade of of the Soviet state, it is, I think, really important to, as you've done and and as have others, is to try to get a sense of, you know, how did first how did people experience these years and how did people experience the idea of revolution and then more importantly how they made that idea of revolution their own, um, and. And here you get, you know, like you said, there's a, there's a, we speak about utop the utopianism of the time, which is, I think, really important because here you have a situation where people believe that there is another way, like a lot of dreaming, as Richard Seitz puts it. But, but here you're getting, 
with with you're looking at these communards and these communes, you're getting, well, yeah, utopian dreaming is fine, but here people are actually trying to live the utopia. They're creating the utopia. Um, so what were these, you know, the commune itself has a, of course, a long history in Russia. Um, and it, and in the Soviet period has many different forms, right? There's village communes, there's agricultural ones, and you're focusing on urban communes. So what is an urban commune? Yeah, well, it, 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 yeah, I think it's important to kind of try and define this as uh, not quite as easy as you'd imagine, because as you say, um, there are many different types of commune, but also in in reality, this this word commune, communo, is just attached to everything that moves or doesn't move in some cases. Um, you know, it, it's in vogue in and of itself. So it's important to try and define this. Um, and I think the the way that um, I tried to do it in the book is to just just to split it up um, a little bit. Uh, so first of all, uh, let's define what a commune is as, as a group, as a group of people coming to live cohabitively. But then also, what is the commune to them as, as an idea? Um, and so in, in, early in the book, I give an example um, of, a, of a commune that's uh, starting in, uh, in Petrograd, um, I think in uh, the uh, Peter the Great Polytechnical, as it's still called at the time, around 1919. Uh, and what is it? Well, it's 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 actually at the time just three uh, young students who come together in a, in their dormitory room, and they they make a founding agreement and will start to to live a collective life. Uh, the, you know, the future society is going to be a collectivist one. We need to raise our collective consciousness so we will live in that manner. So, in the the room, which is apparently you know quite uh, quite a state with drafty windows and exposed wooden floors. They have a table in the centre, which, you know, they have their meals around and they invite students next door to come and debate around and they, they do everything collectively there. They have their beds pushed up against the corner and, and when people come over, they serve as extra seating for debates and whatnot. Um, you know, also in the corner is, is a laundry basket uh, and, and, and a basket full of clothing, underwear and, and whatnot. Um, and everything is sheared out of that basket equally. Um, there's a, a, a tin on, on the table, which is the, you know, the kitty, if you will, the, the, um, the common pot, uh, where all their kind of stipends, all their money would go into, and, and they would share everything out of that equally and uh, make you know, uh, agreements between the group about uh, how they should spend that money. And so, so they're living uh, in this very overtly uh, collectivist manner. Uh, so many of these groups looked like this in the early years, you know, maybe as small as three people, certainly most of them around 10 or under, you know, small groups coming together. Um, but increasingly, you know, they, the, what they're actually doing is they're reading the revolutionary youth press. Uh, they're, they're reading a lot of kind of basically advice literature from people like Krupskaya, Kolontai, who, who are saying that you can teach people to think um, com like a communist, to live and be and breathe like a communist. And so they're, they're playing with these ideas, really. They're implementing them. They're, you know, they're being told that if you live in a collective fashion, you will raise your collective consciousness. And so they implement it. And what I see happening is actually a sort of cyclical relationship with the press developing where these, these activists employ these ideas 
the press then report upon them and it gets bigger and it becomes what um, I've actually termed in the book a revolutionary meme. So this idea of, of, of a meme, I don't, I don't mean like those gifs that are passed around on Twitter. Um, you know, a revolutionary meme, as Richard Dawkins originally referred to it, is, is uh, something like an idea, a behavior, a style that spreads from person to person within a culture. You know, something that conveys a particular kind of theme, phenomenon or meaning. Um, in this sense, kind of a meme acts as a unit of carrying cultural ideas. And I, I think the communes, that, that's what it becomes, especially, you know, in the NEP period. You know, we've had, uh, you know, Michael David Fox and, and Gorsuch talk about this, you know, the NEP be damned period, where, like, the, the cultural aspect of, of revolution becomes more important. And in a way, this... Uh, the, the commune meme becomes caught up in that and it, it kind of runs away of itself and these groups are more likely to be referred to within the press as kind of butovaya uh, kommuna or kind of elements uh, relating to but or the everyday and so that theme is stressed and and that's what I guess I think it, it, it the commune becomes cemented around those ideas so that's kind of what a uh, a commune is both in a very kind of practical sense, but also it's it's a, as much as that, it's it's a trend. It's a specific trend that appeals to young activists. From what I found, particularly kind of uh, revolutionary wannabes, uh, those aspiring to or just gaining cultural membership, perhaps. Um, so these these are people that are you know trying to live the the, the revolution, as as the title of my book uh, suggests. Right. And, and I think it's also important, it, the fact that it's not like they have much of a template in terms of, you know, how to be a socialist, right? This is one of the big things of the 1920s. And through this living, they're kind of trying to construct that, would you say? Oh, yeah, abso absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that's the point. There's this. Um, there's, the, there's a gap there. I mean, I'd say that one thing the, these guys have shown me is that um, there, there's, there's this, this gap between, I guess, autonomy and authority. You know, they, they, they can read about all these ideas. They can go to these cell meetings if they want. Um, but, you know, some of the communals I came across, they reported about being very disillusioned by these meetings. And they, they, they saw consul members not doing anything. So they say, well, you know, if, if not us, then who? So they, 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 they just actively try to implement these ideas. You know, they acted on, on key themes they were reading about and, and made sure that they became more than just words on the page. So, you know, like I said, they, 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 they read a lot about this idea of, of the new way of life and that they enacted what they thought that was about. They read a lot about kind of cultural revolution. And, you know, some of them had been um, in the kind of cultural campaigns and the Red Army and, and, and that kind of thing. And they kind of try to recreate that through these commune groups. So it's not just about what they do domestically. They, they try to campaign as a, as a group, uh, as a domestic unit as well. So, you know, they might go around university settings and, and harass others. Um, and, and, you know, they, they are, like I said, they become very keen on this idea of, of, of civic mindedness, of obschusfenos. So, you know, some groups would make their own kind of stengazietti, their, their, their own kind of war newspapers. Some would um, go out and, and, and kind of uh, read the news to, to people in the streets and that kind of thing and uh, partake in consummal missions. And they saw this as part of their civic duty that was just as important as refashioning the home. Um, and, you know, you know, they'd also, I mean, one thing they became particularly keen on with, um, was basically 
rejecting life as um, the ad hoc, accidental thing it had been before to now embracing the rationalized scientific vision. Uh, that, that's something that kind of gained traction with them very quickly. So they, they, they embraced effectively kind of Taylorism very quickly. They kind of, um, you know, they, they would set their own Taylorist timetables about what time they would wake up and how long they would kind of spend doing, you know, reading, doing work and this kind of thing. Uh, some groups went as far as kind of monitoring, writing a diary to monitor how they were spending their time so that they could scientifically analyze how to better spend their time in the future. Huh, this is actually, you know, um, given this level of attempting to rationalize time, uh, rationalize behavior, uh, how was this, how did this affect personal relations and how did this, did this create a form of kind of regulation between communards within a commune? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I should probably just kind of preface uh, everything I say here with obviously th these these communes are, um, like I say, they're a trend. Uh, so they're, they're, they're not sanctioned and therefore they're not uniform. Um, so you, th th there are different communes behave in different ways. But yet, yeah, generally speaking, there is at least in, in, in most communes this kind of agreement that uh, relations, be, be, be they kind of intimate relations or just you know, friendships, whatever they may be, uh, will be analysed and rationalised from the beginning. You know, there, there was one commune I came across in, 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 a, in a student dormitory and uh, they would write notes to each other um, saying how they think that each other could be improved as an individual. Um, you know, and this led to arguments between groups. Um, and But also, you know, some communes would, would discuss, I mean, this might be something we can talk about in, in more detail um, as the podcast progresses, but they, they, they would talk about um, how relationships should be formed, should there be such a thing as free love. And, and so whether, you know, one commune did embrace that and another commune didn't, you know, that doesn't really matter. The fact is that it was on the agenda. No, I definitely uh, we'll we'll get to some of the these kind of ethical questions in terms of how these people behave. But first, you know, as you said, they're they're kind of making up. Well, I shouldn't say making up, but they're creating the revolution or revolutionary life as as they're going along. But at the same time, you know, as they as they open, there is a long history of the commune in many historical examples, and also within the revolutionary movement in Russia or the revolutionary movement's imagination in Russia, there are examples in which your people are drawing upon here, you know, you can look at Chernyshevsky and what is to be done and, and other examples, um, the, the kind of fetishism of even peasant commune amongst populists in the, the uh, pre-revolutionary period. So what, what historical examples did they draw upon that influenced them to see, to even understand well, what is a commune? What should it be? Absolutely, yeah. That's a, that's a good question, um, because I mean, even if we just think about you know, communes or intentional communities, if you will, across the globe, I mean, they're, they're all united by a sense of wanting to foster brotherhood, rejecting the established order, you know, wanting it to create a new way of life. But I think it's, um, you know, it, it's how they, they they act on these and, and and what they bring to the party, so to speak, that that kind of really defines what what these groups become, and certainly. Um, the way I see it with these urban commune groups in, in the Soviet Union, in, in Russia, is that um, there's, there's a couple of things that kind of come together to make them. Uh, so there's these kind of, the, the antecedent element of it all, like what are they drawing on? I mean, one thing I mentioned in the book is that obviously living cheek by jowl is nothing new to Russians. Um, <laughs> 
but you know, I, I don't want to be so simplistic as to say that uh, this is just a mere continuation, uh, just with a Soviet flavouring. Um, but I mean, still at the same time, we can see that um, many were inspired by these kind of deeply ingrained community ties of you know, and this kind of sense of uh, community resilience uh, within Russians that that was ce celebrated by you know, the Russian intellectuals of the 19th century. Uh, you know, be it you know whatever, whatever side of this you you come from, whether you be a kind of Dostoevsky, you're celebrating brotherhood, uh, or you're a Shchedsky, or you're celebrating brotherhood from a different perspective, perhaps. Um, and 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 so there there is um, a, a natural perhaps uh, collectivism or cultural collectivism that that certainly feeds into the, these guys, uh, and, and indeed, I mean perhaps even quite prosaically. I mean there was one uh, example I came across of a young communard who um, had you know come from the village. He's he, he becomes part of one of these urban communes, and one day he comes back from market apparently, and he's bought a pig. Uh, you know, he hasn't quite shed his his, his kind of uh, peasant way, shall we say, uh, and and and, the, and you know the commune apparently embraces this pig as the latest communard, the latest member. Uh, you know, it becomes quite impractical quite quickly. Uh, you know, the pig is is got rid of. Uh, I don't know what they do to it. Uh, maybe they eat it. Um, and and but anyway, the, the, that that com particular communard is is called a peasant ideologue, and they play a bunch of pranks on him uh, for ruthlessly apparently for for a number of months, um, which is reassuring because it, it makes you realise that these these guys are actually human. Uh, at least they're having having a laugh. Um, but you know, so so there is that element that they they are drawing on a cultural inheritance of some sort, but they're then also actively trying to implement a. Um, modern socialist vision. Uh, so they are, you know, some of them, directly referencing uh, Chernyshevsky's "What Is to Be Done." They're referencing the kind of the, the vision of the um, you know, the new uh, people, the new person, uh, the Ragmatov character. Um, and obviously, if we look at um, Vera's sewing cooperative within the novel, um, you have arguably the very first commune, um, you know, they, they live in this cooperative apartment, um, apparently, and, and they're trying to embrace a new way of life. Um, and, and even if, um, you know, not all, all the communes I came across were directly trying to reinterpret uh, Chernyshevsky, um, but they certainly had kind of come across the tropes and themes of the novel through Soviet literature, or through kind of the youth press, at least anyway. Um, and also some of these early commune groups, uh, not only actively kind of drawing on that, they sometimes even, especially in the early days when, when even the name commune wasn't set in stone, they would sometimes call themselves an artiel or, or kind of, the, uh, uh, you know, they might go by uh, krushka or krushki, um, thinking of themselves as, as circles so, so, uh, or debating circles. So they're definitely drawing on elements of a collective heritage or what they they deem as a kind of like the a certain vision of it at least but in, in increasingly um, as we know after 1917 we see the Soviet Union also actively celebrate the Paris Commune of 1871 as the first socialist insurrectionary event uh, and, and you know, like I say it, it becomes you know a vogue word in many respects but it also very quickly becomes tied up with the housing question, with domesticity, um, 
you know, Engels, uh, the housing question published in 1872, said that this was uh, an example that we could repurpose housing and, and form uh, a new way of, of living. And obviously Lenin uh, quoted that and eventually that made its way into the youth press in, in, in various forms. And, and, and so the, these kind of activists end up drawing on, on that heritage. So it's a coming together of, I guess, a something specifically Russian, um, uh, at least it laid laid the the foundations or laid laid the door open for something like these 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 collective uh, collective visions. But then the, they're also actually trying to def- uh, ultimately define themselves as a new socialist, modern socialist. You know, the emphasis on the modern there um, way of living. So your book deals with caught these urban communes in three different spaces, really dormitories and university uh, apartments and factories. And and one of the things that struck me is just the geography of that, the fact that these communes are taking place in specifically specific spaces of, of living life of residents or in terms of factory work. So I, I thought I'd have you talk about what role do these spaces play to facilitate communal living or communal practices. Yeah. Also, I've um, in in the book, as you as you allude to, I I, I split things up, and it, it broadly follows a chronological development. Um, but there's a bit of crossover. I split them up, and and I kind of analyze those communes that were formed in in kind of university dormitories, those that were formed in normal apartments, perhaps you know factory barracks, and then those that towards you know the end of the twenties in the first five year plan are definitely identifying themselves as um, production communes, working in, in industry, definitely in the kind of factory barracks and factory tents, if you will, in some cases. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is, you know, the, these spaces, how, how is it forming their communal practices? Well, the first thing to note is, you know, what were these spaces to these young communes? Um, especially in the, these early days, um, you know, some of the first commune groups I came across in 1919 and then 1918, 1919, they were part of this period of revolutionary housing repetition, where apparently, you know, housing would be fairly, uh, would be captured, um, fairly redistributed um, with some hopefully kind of Bolshevik authorities uh, leading the way, although from what I can tell, that wasn't always the case. It was a bit more uh, chaotic on the ground. But what's happening in those days is this kind of cathartic um, seizing of property. It's And, and, and as some of these communes move into um, the apartments, for instance, they, they are the space of the old. They are the space of the old family. They are the space of the old elite. And therefore, they by taking them, they are rejecting these things. So from the get-go, the very act of seizing it is, is an important one. Uh, seizing these properties is an important one. Um, equally, you know, some of the, there are found reports that some of these groups would knock down interior walls because there were too many uh, kind of cozy spaces. Um, so, you know, the, these guys are inventing open plan living uh, before before it's trendy, um, probably making some of these buildings quite structurally unsound. But you know, th- this is an, is, a, is an attack on individualism. Again, this is, an, this is a way of them making sure that this is a collective way of uh, living life, of, of implementing domesticity. Um, and, and and so all that is kind of taking these spaces. They they also um, 
would allocate uh, very much kind of copying uh, what's going on in, in the workers' clubs uh, across the Soviet Union at this time. They would uh, allocate um, a, red, a red corner or a little red corner, for instance, where they would do their reading and things like that. Um, so they're, they're kind of repurposing the space to, to make it uh, socialist, as they understand it as well. Um, but also, I mean, when I first um, kind of presented some of my findings on these groups, I mean, one question I kept getting was, well, yeah, but uh, is, is this not just like a practical reaction? You know, times are hard. Um, you know, living together is cheaper. Um, you know, taking over these spaces, well, they need somewhere to live. Uh, yes, that's entirely true. But, I mean, they're so overtly ideological in what they're doing that I think what you need to realise with these guys is that they, you know, the, the, the practical element of what they're doing and the ideological cannot be divorced. I mean, the very fact that there are drafty windows that need to be um, you know, repaired or, or, or there's damp that needs to be sorted out, I mean, that is part of uh, their revolutionary journey. They need to overcome this. They can improve material conditions and, and they can make socialism. That's how immediate it is for them. That is progress, you know, that they had no property before, and now they have a space to live and they're making it better. So, it, you know, the, the, these spaces become um, communal, they become uh, revolutionary um, in a very immediate sense for, 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 these, for these people. And these spaces, um, you know, they immediately talk about them as you know, the battleground for socialism. Uh, one commune group uh, said that from the floors of the old house, the new way of life shall rise up. Um, so, so these spaces are, 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 yeah, incredibly important. And uh, I, I guess, you know, Trotsky um, in his Problems of Everyday Life, you know, w was probably predicting, uh, well, not predicting, rather than 23, didn't he? But, you know, probably speaking for these guys in some respect when he said that uh, the problem of everyday life was a central site of revolution. And it really was uh, for, for them. Like, the, these spaces were the revolution. This wasn't an aside. Uh, this wasn't unimportant. This this was, you know, a deeply important area. And um, these spaces made revolutionary messages come to life you know they 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 could read um marx all they liked um but you know das capital is best used as, as a doorstop as far as they're concerned you know th th this is what made socialism real to them this is what it made it tangible it, it was the four walls around them so how did then going going to this question of uh you know the, the relationship between the spaces and the people and this desire to create uh, not just n new ways of life, like novi buit, new everyday life, but uh, you make an interesting distinction, or at least I saw that it was a, you made a distinction between novi buit, new everyday life, with and new life, a new way, new life completely. So how did these spaces and this desire to recreate life within them as a whole uh, contribute to how relationships between these people who are now in really close quarters, they're having to share. And at the same time, you know, people are still human beings, right? <laughs> um, so how, how did, how did this affect how people related to one another? Yeah. And it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, just to kind of go back to the point, yeah, I, I did try and kind of make this slight distinction. Um, and, and I was encouraged to do this by Mark Steinberg, actually, who was who later um, announced himself as, as one of the uh, readers of the book or the manuscript. I should couldn't, say, couldn't have a better came. better one. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And 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 yeah. So I, th this kind of idea of the of the new way of life is novi breed. It, it, it's all about the kind of 
those trying to tackle those customs, those the, the, those everyday things, those uh, as as I kind of put it in the book, um, the, the things that are hidden in in plain sight, um, and 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 it's all about questioning those ethics. Whereas that that bigger, grander issue of, of the novaya uh, and, and and the idea of the of the new life itself, it's it's you know they they, they they cross there's a crossover, but it's all about this this grander vision. It's more about the grander vision, what the society would be like, and it's symbolised by slightly different things, um, but but they both influence how these communes come together. Um, I think the best way to kind of answer your question about um, how how these spaces are created and then and then the effects that, that this has on, on these these activists is, is to kind of look at a few examples perhaps. So some of the the student communes for instance that I've briefly mentioned. Um, so, so some what did these guys do? Well yeah, they came together in single dormitories um, and they started living this collective life like I said. Um, but I also found uh, in uh, what became the Hertzen student newspaper um, that's actually they could evolve in different ways. Like some of them would try and take over neighbouring apartments as as they would uh, grow, and they'd call themselves uh, or aspire to be floor communes. You know, taking over an entire floor. Some would even talk about, although I didn't really find examples of those those that actually achieved it. Talk about um, becoming dormitory communes. You know, entire kind of taking over entire obshijitia. Um So so there's there's this kind of structural vision of, of what they will be, um, but. In, inside these these groups, um, you know, young activists such as uh, one guy I found, Jan Bulat, he, he came uh, into, um, I forget which university he ended up at or which institute he ended up at now. Uh, it might have been the electrotechnical. Um, he you know, entered the university system in the mid-20s. He'd, um, he'd, he'd fought uh, in, well, been in the cultural campaigns uh, in the Red Army, and he saw these these communes as uh, a new revolutionary awakening, his second revolutionary awakening, as he as he put it. Um, so he formed his own, and you know, in these groups, they uh, they are, are living what they see as an exemplary life, and they're therefore trying to get other students to follow them. Um, the, the ambition is ultimately uh, to to spread, so it makes sense that they, they spread into other rooms and, and, and such things. But then also they're, um, they're partaking in the cultural life of these institutions. So I found that also they started to partake in some of the earliest cultural inspections, uh, as they seem to call themselves, where you know, the, these inspection, inspectors would go around the dormitories and um, Work out you know, which were the cleanest, uh, which were the mo- and therefore the most cultural, which were the best uh, kind of um, group of students working together, improving their lots, etc. Um, and, and 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 these inspections would be then um, printed up in in student newspapers, like the Hitson example. Um, and you know, some some of the examples I, I I got were quite funny. So the, the, I mean, the funniest ones were when the inspectors found that um, I forget the details now, but uh, they they inspected one room and they had clearly failed in their cultural mission because they found they immediately walked into 184 empty bottles of alcohol. Um, <laughs> you know, they walked in and there were cigarette butts on the beds and it was disgusting. Right. You know, and so they named and shamed the worst performers and they kind of gave awards to the best. And anyway, so the commune, the student communes were part of this and it really kind of seemed to kind of stimulate them because they, they kind of started to grow in number across the mid-20s um, 
Well, and specifically student communes, uh, the, the the figures are really hard to come across. Um, but I mean, generally speaking, the, the, these commune groups we're talking about um, what what I found is really defined as as communes in in the uh, a few years after nineteen seventeen. We're dealing with still in the hundreds around kind of the Petrograd region, plus growing into the thousands uh, it, by the mid twenties as this revolutionary meme becomes more defined uh, and and then by the end of the 20s as we kind of get these guys mixed up a bit with kind of shock brigades and that kind of thing and and, and they're becoming a uh, you know a, a bit confused about their identity um you know, numbers are, are are spiking um and you know the consumers suggest that you know 50,000 young activists are somehow related to to the these commune groups um by you know 29 and this number keeps growing um so but it's it's, it's hard to kind of um pin pin it down exactly the the student commune groups i mean some stats i found had like a handful of uh, registered student communes in in the kind of petrograd and then leningrad uh region um but then, you know, what I found in the student youth press suggested that at this time there, there were many hundreds. They just hadn't kind of met, um, the, you know, the, or basically the, the kind of the infrastructure of, of these these uh, institutions and the state itself was, you know, in its infancy at this time. So the, the numbers are, are, are hard to come across. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they're, they're cer- certainly kind of uh, growing at this time. And, you know, another um, example is uh, a communard named uh, Baliezen. He, he comes into Leningrad by, as it is by that point and um, he becomes part of a, a commune uh, group or helps set up a commune group um, after the 1924 flood. Um, which So there's a group that starts off as a kind of flood relief team that goes down uh, the kind of basements of uh, Nesky Prospekt and apparently salvaging things and they say, that, you know, they they salvaged most things and they might have occasionally allowed themselves uh, some of the alcohol as they did so, um, but the, that becomes like a um, an experience by which they then go on to make their own commune and and under kind of Baliezin's kind of kind of determined uh, character this commune um, is one of those that that grows and expands so it, it starts off in a dormitory then moves to an apartment for a brief period of time ends up back in a dormitory and spreads across a few other dormitory rooms and starts to take over those rooms, reappropriate them. It sets up some of those rooms as sleeping quarters, some as debate centres, some as areas um, for, for you know, rationalised leisure time to kind of fit with that kind of disciplined uh, element uh, of, of the socialist vision here. But he also aims to kind of promote um, the kind of the, the canteen and collective eating, uh, and, and actually pushes the local consommol into helping him kind of a, a establish a canteen that would also um, be open to to members of the public. So there's the, there's all these things they're doing to kind of change the student environment. Um, but then also, you know, like I said, it, it happens outside the student environment as well. So. Um, one of my favourite examples is uh, the Makrinsky commune, um, who sets up in the kind of uh, Kitaygorod region of Moscow. Um, and there's two communards um, who kind of set this up. Um, I, f- I might mix them up here, but one just known as Andrei, writing to Sergei, it might be the other way around. 
uh, you know, they, they write to each other um, across uh, the, the summer break or something like that. And one says, oh, I can't stand the idea of um, leaving university and, and the kind of collective living. Um, what do you say? We, we strike it up together and, and they start a commune together and they get some friends and activists together and 10 of them set up this commune in, in, in Moscow and they, they're talking about what they can do in this space and you know they so they've got two bedrooms they've got a kitchen they've got a living room which, which they called the club you know very aspirational thing here communes written above the door um and they they also start to set up their own committees uh and and i was quite puzzled by this at first because i was thinking like there's 10 of these guys and from what i can see they've got a finance committee a clothing committee housekeeping a hygiene committee and a politics uh, politics committee broadly speaking and it's like so there's like split between all those five you know there's there's two in each committee is that really a committee and then i realized that actually you know they're not speaking bolshevik they're they're speaking modernity like this is socialist modernity they and and so they they're embracing this 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 term committee as a very aspirational thing and they do the same with statistics so you know they they read the stats in the newspapers about the average, um, how often the average uh, Soviet or Russian um, cleans their teeth. And they say, we must beat this statistic. How often the average Russian changes their underwear. Oh, we're doing really well. We're ahead of that. So like, these are the things they're measuring themselves against. And and these are the things that they kind of change their environment uh, with. You know, uh, all of these people, it seems to me, are young people. Right. This is a this is this commune, urban commune seems to be mostly focused around uh, part of a larger youth movement. Um, so where do you place this communal uh, phenomenon within the larger or wider expression of revolutionary youth culture and politics after 1917? Yeah, well, it's this commune movement meme, um, if you will, it's. We're dealing with, uh, at its peak, a significant minority. Um, but, you know, I can't claim that these guys are, are the thing that's changing revolution on the ground themselves. But I think they, they encapsulate uh, a lot and they speak to, to so much more um, about the revolution. They speak about what's going on around them. Um, you know, in, in, very early on, you have, you know, Komsomol figures and, 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 and youth figures such as uh, Dunievsky, for instance, talking about these people, uh, and, and I think Anne Gorsuch has, has mentioned this as well, talking about these people as, as those that would um, finally, you know, uh, end the old traditional family and reinvent what the family is meant to be. So, um, whilst you know the, this isn't the majority of the population by by any uh, uh, kind of measure, they, they they're speaking to all the issues that are important to to the youth and youth movement, and yes, they are predominantly, from what I can see, young. You know, the the, the commune is is something uh, that's it's acceptable. You know, it's it's not going into the realms of opposition, but it it provides a space where people can. Um, enact their vision of revolution because they think it's you know everything around them is going too slowly uh, you know so in that extent they're, they're disappointed with, with um the, what's going on around them you know they're they're eager for tomorrow to come today um and and so the so the the commune becomes um a way of them doing that 
So I think it's, it speaks to much uh, of the youth experience uh, or the, the kind of activist youth experience. It speaks to all the issues that are important to the Consumall. It, it speaks to all, all the issues that are important um, to, to, to the youth at this time. And, and the, within it all, there's always, you have to remember, a generational aspect. So whether it's... A, um, the student communes who are obviously going to be young, um, or whether it's uh, the communes that come a bit later, the production communes who start to work in industry uh, and, and kind of take on some of the shock brigade tactics, um, they're actually setting themselves up against the older workers. I mean, some of them are really seemingly annoyed by the older workers who are stuck in their ways, who had the benefit of the, you know, um, the, the, a, a kind of previous training system or an apprenticeship system that they don't have. And so there's always this kind of underlying element where, for them, the vision of socialism is, is a generational conflict, and they are the first generation of Soviets, and therefore they have the right to, to do such things. You know, these communes are kind of spontaneous, autonomous organizations of sorts. So what was the relationship to, say, the party, the Komsomol, and other state institutions? How, or, and how did those institutions regard them? Yeah, um, again, it's one of those areas where it's not a uniform picture. Um, but uh, having said that, um, again, the commune meme as an idea and, and the very actress that created it, they are always working between uh, autonomy and authority. They're always... Um, working um, between what they're reading about and the realities of, of, of what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, in some cases, the Baliezin uh, communard I mentioned, the student communard, um, he um, was very dissatisfied with the Consumol, and he kind of, after his commune had been established for a couple of years, he urged the local, local Consumol cell to come and compare his um, commune with an ordinary dormitory and how, how they worked. And apparently the study was favorable. Um, so he, he's kind of constantly pushing the Consumol to, to be more like him, uh, or more like uh, he, he wants uh, the world to be. Um, equally so, you know, when these communes set up in the factory, they're often pushing factory management to uh, adopt um, kind of collectivist practices. Some of them are kind of very keen on, I guess, what we'd call as kind of ergonomic reform of kind of, yeah. <laughs> of some of them would move tools around at night time and then say that's a more efficient way of doing things and the older workers would come back in the morning and go where the hell has everything gone they must um, have been really so, popular <laughs> yeah exactly so you know, they, they would have annoyed their fair share of people but in some cases uh you know, the local consumer cells party cells um they, they gained some support uh and 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 I mean, the, the the closest they came to to getting some sort of sanction, if you will, um, came from twenty nine thirty, uh, when again they're becoming somewhat embroiled with uh, the five year plan, and um, the head of the Consumol, Alexander uh, Kosarov, um, yeah, he is approached. Um, I can't remember who approached him, but he's approached at some point about perhaps supporting some sort of all-union meeting of communes and collectives um, and, you know, uh, and, and kind of the, these kind of uh, young activists. And initially, he apparently rejects it. But I think what's also happening around this time is there's, there's a push again from, from party leadership to um, help mobilization through, but also to try and, try and learn about some of the initiatives on the ground. And he, he then says, well, at first, I thought maybe uh, Konsumovka Pravda should lead this, but in fact, um, I think we can learn something 
about you know about Buit, about uh, the the new way of life and what these guys are doing. So that's helped support that. And there is actually a, a kind of semi-official all-union meeting uh, of communes and, and collectives at, at, in 1930. Um, so within this, you can see an element where some of the these uh, some of their activities are starting to be kind of co-opted or codified um, from the ground. It's not saying that they are um, kind of leading the way. Far from it. I mean, they they could annoy just as much as they could inspire. And in, at, at this time, you know, I I found um, particularly towards the end of the twenties there are just as many kind of critical reports coming up in the press as there are positive reports. So there's a mixed picture of them, but they're, they're kind of, they're helping to lay, I'd say, the kind of culture or the working culture of the shop floor by the end of the 20s to some extent with the help of, 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 um, of the more uh, supportive aspects of, of the consomol on the ground um, in, in some areas and you know to that extent I guess how I'd sum that up is that it, it, it seemed to matter in some cases what these guys did and said in certain spaces it, it would um, it would lay the way open for certain ideological imperatives or put a block on others at certain points that's the kind of influence they're having it's not leadership but it is it, it is affecting the the, the manner by which these ideas come into practice. And, and another thing too, and I think this goes to your, your, the story of, or at least your pushback against the idea that, you know, the rise and fall of the commune and it's kind of, you know, gone away with, with Stalinism is that there, there does seem to be a, an element of institutionalization or at least incorporation because of say the shock worker movement or some of the campaigns that the Komsomol begins to engage in in late in 1928 going to the village and things like this so how does the commune live on after the 1920s this is something I kind of uh, allude to towards the end of the book, obviously. Um, I mean, the first thing first, I mean, you're right. I do push back against this idea that, um, that I guess I, I got from Stites, really, that you know, the beautiful utopian childlike element uh, is crushed by Stalin. Now, clearly, the boundaries of debate are narrowing and, 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 and um, the, these communards uh, are having to work in a more restrictive environment as the first five-year plan develops. That's, you know, I don't doubt that. Uh, but one thing I will say is that you know, there's no bloody end. You know, the, these guys seem to, in, in some, in some, I'm sure in some cases, you know, some uh, uh, ended their commune kicking and screaming. Um, but, you know, so the examples I found are some of them were actually embracing some of uh, Stalin's ideas, you know. So so we should be careful to look at these uh, these guys through rose-tinted spectacles, you know. I think I put in the book at one point, you know, be careful what you wish for. And you know, these guys don't stop Stalin, you know. Um, and, and so there was one example there where the German traveller Klaus uh, Mernert, um comes across, uh, it's, it's, he comes across the McClinsky commune, that's it, and he goes back to see them at some point in 30-31, I can't remember. And um, he, he, he's speaking to uh, one of the um, communards and, uh, and he's, he suddenly realizes that, you know, hang on, so are you guys not a commune anymore? And they said, oh, no, we had a collective vote. We decided to become a lesser collective, you know, which 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 is basically they're becoming more like a cost accounting brigade at this point. Um, and and when speaking to him, like he suddenly realizes that this guy's ideology has kind of shifted. And he says, oh, you, you know, you Germans, you don't understand, you know, um, 
the world has uh, has changed. We've taken over the means of production. We can't be exploited. So you know we have to let go of that idea of sharing everything out of the common pot, uh, out of the kitty equally. And therefore, you know, some uh, kind of peace rates and 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 uh, those uh, the fact that those some can earn a bit more than others. That's fine. So they they start to shift their ideology. And I realised that to some extent, you know. These young activists, you know, they're clued up on the ideology. They're reading about it all the time. They're, they're trying to implement it in their lives. And so they, they can see the shifts coming. So some of them just embrace it. Um, so, so in that respect, my argument is that you know, th- there isn't this bloody end. And, and they, li- they, they live on in some respect, insofar as some of the individual communes I've, I've found live on. They don't die. So there's one, uh, Olga um, Komova, she, uh, she becomes a school teacher. And she talks, uh, you know, I found some press clippings um, from later in her life in the 60s, I think it was, that were in the, uh, one of the, I think it was the Hertzen um, University Museum. Um, and she talked about how the commune had given her a sense of socialist duty. And so that kind of lived on with her. But Halyazin, like, likewise, he, he became a scientist uh, and did a bunch of stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But anyway, um, he he talked about the duty uh, and, and collectivism that he learned at, at the time. And, and so these guys kind of live on. And, and, and in their individual stories, they, they talk about taking lessons. Um, but then also I kind of end the book by by hinting at perhaps another topic of study that could be undertaken. When we get to the 50s and 60s, we have obviously had the, the communards movement uh, and we have some of these guys referring back to the 20s as this kind of uh, age of collectivism and uh, collective initiative. And it kind of struck me that uh, maybe, you know, they're building on some of the kind of collective memory of these communes uh, in this movement itself. So, I mean, that's why I kind of end the book uh, with a a chapter that says the commune is dead, but long live the communard. Because, you know, perhaps some of this lives on and some of the themes that they helped lay the ground for certainly uh, live on as well. Or, you know, they at least um, they weren't a roadblock to what came. And finally, you write in in the introduction, you say that each commune holds up a mirror to the larger story of how revolution, state, and society developed after 1917. But what do we learn about the early Soviet system through the commune? The the most important thing um, is, from these guys, is to assess the manner by which these grand ideological visions come to practice. That's what really interested me, and I think that's one of the key lessons we can learn. And we can see that they are actually in dialogue with local representatives at various points. We can see, like I've hinted at, that some of their ideas are co-opted and codified. We can see an influence there, but we can also see socialism in real life through their their experience. Um, And I think... You know, for so long, history was about uh, the great man uh, and, you know, the, the genius of, uh, and always the man, obviously, the genius of the man. And I, I did start to, to wonder at some point that maybe that we've replaced that with uh, an age of the great ideas. So we're talking about the power of ideology to change. Uh, and so I was hoping that to some extent, one of the lessons that we can learn from groups such as this is we can see how those ideas happen in reality. You know, it kind of tethers the, 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 those ideological visions and, and great ideas to reality. And we can see these things taking space, uh, t- taking place in uh, an everyday reality. Um, and, you know, for instance, 
with that, when you look at the production communes, when you look at their, the fact that they were allowed to exist, um, you know, when that traditional, um, perhaps totalitarian vision of the Soviet Union tells us that they shouldn't have existed, they did. The mere fact they existed tells us something. Um, we, you know, and Karl Marx said of the, you know, the Paris Commune of 1871 is that the most important thing about it is not what they achieved, but the working example, the fact that, 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 that they were, were there to, to set an example. Well, the fact that the, these communes are, are, are here and, and are able to create a space of, of their own initiative tells us a great deal. And I think ultimately what it, what it tells us uh, is that Soviet ideology at this time could both frame and fire the imagination. And, and, and that's what's happening with, with these groups, I think. That was Andy Willimont, a lecturer in modern Russian and Soviet history at the University of Reading. He's the co-author with Matthias Newman of Rethinking the Russian Revolution as Historical Divide. His new book is Living the Revolution, Urban Communes and Soviet Socialism, 1917 to 1931, published by Oxford University Press, and the winner of the Bassis Alexander Nova Book Prize for 2018. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!